So this is a pretty popular parable. Um, probably, maybe the most popular, the most, like Carlos said, famous, well-known parable that Jesus told, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's actually kind of anchored itself in our culture. Anytime somebody talks about somebody being a Good Samaritan, we know what they're talking about. We're, we know that we're, they're talking about somebody who has helped someone else. And I just discovered this very recently. Uh, there's an organization, the largest recreational vehicle organization in the U.S. is called the Good Sam Club. You probably have recognized or seen this logo before. I just figured this out. That's Good Samaritan Club. You know, maybe you, some of you have known that for a long time. That, and this is an organization that's been around for a long, long time. And it's referring to their mission of their members helping other members uh, that are in need. We actually had the um, the CEO of Camping World and Good Sam as one of the speakers at the summit this year. So it's good to help people in need, right? We, we teach our kids this. We teach our kids to uh, to share, to be kind to the new kid at school, to help people. The Boy Scouts, their slogan, do a good deed or good turn daily. Even in their oath, it says to help other people at all times. And I'm I'm especially grateful that my wife has taught our kids uh, lessons over the years as a special education teacher. To be nice to everyone, to notice people, especially those people who are on on the margins, the people who are the overlooked, the people who are the unnoticed, the people who need a hand. And obviously, the parable of the Good Samaritan teaches us that. But it's got a lot more to say. Uh, it's also a parable about about excuses, about letting ourselves off the hook. So, let's, let's take a closer look at this, at this parable. In Luke chapter 10, it begins with Jesus having an encounter with a lawyer, a man skilled at interpreting the, uh, the Jewish Torah, which are the first five books of the Old Testament. And it's fascinating that Luke places this incident right after Jesus prays this to his father. He says, you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to children. And the children he's referring to are, are Jesus' followers who had seen, just seen, Jesus' power at work in an amazing way. And now, now we're going to meet the wise and the learned, represented by this legal expert, a very sophisticated scholar, trained to clarify the Jewish law. And in verse 25, Luke shifts his focus from the children to the wise and the learned. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? And the lawyer answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. 
do this and you will live. Now, the lawyer, he asks a really great question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, what's, what's the most important thing for me to do to be saved? Good question. But why is he asking this question? Luke tells us the lawyer's motive is to test Jesus. The skilled lawyer is testing this unofficial Galilean lay teacher to see how he's going to answer a tough theological question. And maybe the lawyer's curious. Who is this rabbi? This teacher? Maybe he's already heard Jesus speak or heard rumors of Jesus' radical message. Maybe, maybe he's jealous. Jealous of Jesus' growing popularity and his, and his following uh, amongst this mix of, of controversial people. Maybe the lawyer wants to demonstrate that Jesus can't stand up to a real test by a brilliant expert like himself. You know, it's not the only time Jesus has been tested during his ministry. People have been challenging him on all kinds of things like taxes and divorce, the Sabbath, the resurrection of the dead, Old Testament prophecies, ceremonial laws, demons performing miracles, stoning adulterers. That's just a few. So we're not sure of the lawyer's motive. Curiosity, jealousy, pride, envy. Maybe he's just doing his job. Whatever the case, we know how Jesus responds. He doesn't answer the question. Instead, he appeals to the lawyer's own training and he turns the question right back on to him. What's written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus says, you're the expert. How would you answer the question? And the lawyer's answer is fascinating. (laughs) He actually agrees exactly with how Jesus himself summarizes the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus compliments him. You have answered correctly. And did you notice that somewhere along the way here, the roles have reversed? That Jesus is now the expert and he's telling the lawyer he got the answer, right? I love that. The lawyer who began to test Jesus is now himself being evaluated. But when you think about it, Jesus' compliment is, is remarkable. So often Jesus has to to deal with Pharisees whose understanding of the law is way out of whack. They they emphasize minor details and they miss the big picture. They strain out gnats but swallow camels, Jesus says is Matthew 23. But this lawyer, somehow he sees it. He sees the big picture. He seems to understand what most Pharisees miss. And the lawyer recites what Jesus called the greatest commandment. To love God and to love your neighbor. Do this, Jesus said, and you will live. But the lawyer wanted to justify himself 
So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Again, we don't know what's going on in the lawyer's head. Jesus said he correctly understood the heart of the law. Love your neighbor yourself. Was the lawyer feeling convicted? Maybe a little itchy under the clerical collar? Starting to get a little sweaty? So he leans into what he knows, and he knows the law. The Jewish law narrowly defines the word neighbor. For instance, back in the Old Testament, Leviticus says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. So in true legal fashion, the the lawyer defends his position by carefully defining words. What is your definition of of neighbor? He asks Jesus. And what's happening here is a sort of a, it's kind of a, a, a rabbi throwdown, kind of a, a legal cage match happening here. You know, at the bell, the challenger fires off his first question about eternal life. And the, the champ, Jesus, successfully, skillfully blocks with his own question. And then the challenger backpedals, but not for long. And then he weighs back in with a strong, precise answer. And then the champ gives the defender a nod, recognizing his respect for his skills. And, and then the challenger charges back in and he probes the chance further, looking for a weakness. I mean, who's going to tap out first here? Now, the Jews typically interpreted neighbor as one who is near. A neighbor could be someone you don't know, but they will still be a member of the same people the same religious community, that is, a Jew. The lawyer believes that the essence of the law is to love one's neighbor as oneself, but he limits this to fellow Jews only. Love your own race. Love your own faith community, he believes, and you fulfilled the law. Hmm. Could it be that people are living under that same law even today? Luke tells us that the lawyer's first motive is to test Jesus, but his second motive is to justify himself, to defend his own narrow interpretation of the law. And in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, if someone were to ask you a definition of neighbor, you'd probably pull out your Webster's Dictionary and give them a very precise response. But Jesus answers with a parable. And parables we've been learning over the summer are stories told to make a point. They aren't actually history, but they make use of real-life details so that the listeners can identify with it and, and they can catch the story's spiritual meaning. There was no actual Good Samaritan, 
But Jesus knows that his listeners are aware of the dangers of traveling alone on the Jericho-Jerusalem road. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Jerusalem is located along this ridge of coastal mountains in Palestine. Here's a Here's a map. I don't know if you can see it or not. That second red dot up from the bottom. That's Jerusalem setting up high on this ridge of, of coastal mountains. And Jericho, on the other hand, is the one in the middle off a little bit to the right. Down in the Jordan River Plain. And when I mean down, I mean it's located hundreds of feet below sea level. This is a 17-mile road between Jerusalem and Jericho. And as you walk down this road to Jericho, you are descending 3,300 feet. And it's barren. It's, it's a rocky country where thieves and robbers can easily hide. Here's a, here's a current picture of the road to Jericho from Jerusalem. It's probably not what you expected, right? Not from those flannel graphs you had in Sunday school. And, and it, I mean, to me, it looks a little tiny bit intimidating, doesn't it? Historians believe that there are whole villages around Jerusalem that were known as nests of thieves. And this, this was their highway. Now, these robbers on the Jericho Road must have been pretty desperate. Even if a man had little of value, they would attack him just for their clothes. But they didn't just beat this man and take his clothing, or just threaten him and take his clothing. They beat him. They probably used wooden staffs. And they did it probably to keep him from following them, or maybe to scare him so that that he wouldn't try to identify them. Jesus says that they left him half dead. And I'm sure Jesus' listeners are now eager to find out what happens to this unfortunate man. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Two well-known figures in Jesus' story, priest and a Levite. A priest would be returning to Jericho after serving in the temple in Jerusalem because most of the priests at that time lived in Jericho. Levites also served in the temple. Uh, They were kind of second rank to the priests. But they still had a very privileged place in society. So in Jesus' story, both the priest and the Levite, they see the wounded man, they skirt around him and they choose not to help. You know, the listeners were probably thinking, yeah, that's typical. You you can almost kind of see them rolling their eyes and shaking their heads. And I mean, I bet, I bet there were a few anti-priest stories circulating among the Jews. You know, people, people enjoy seeing overly religious person exposed as a hypocrite, right? Believe me kind of noticed over the years that preachers, pastors, other religious professionals don't get cast too positively in 
stories and movies and TV shows. Actually, some believe that the priest and Levite may have had a reason, a good reason, for their actions. After all, as temple officials, they were especially concerned with ceremonial cleanliness. The law states that the the high priest must never enter a place where there is a dead body. They can't even touch something that has come in contact with a corpse. So, what if this beaten man lying by the side of the road was dead? I mean, I don't, he's not moving. You can't be too careful, you know. But there's an exception in the law. Pharisees also believe that touching a dead body, if no one else was available to perform the burial, burial, would not defile a priest. And the law is really clear about helping people in need. Even your enemy. Over and over, the Torah says that God's people are to help others who are in need. When they fall down, when they're hungry, when they're thirsty, when they're sick, when they're grieving, when they need a place to stay, they are to help them. And you remember the verse that the lawyer quoted to Jesus? I mean, it makes the priests and the Levites' obligations clear. Love your neighbor as yourself. And pretty sure that this guy lying at the side of the road was a Jew. Placing religious purity over helping an injured person is hard-hearted and selfish. And walking on the other side of the road demonstrates that they didn't want to find out if he was dead or alive. The less they saw, the less they knew, and the less they would feel obligated to help. It's kind of like saying, hey, I, I don't want to get involved. It's none of my business. So a priest, a Levite, and then the listeners would be expecting a third person. I mean, there's there's always three people in stories like this. Back then, even today, there's always three men walking into a bar, right? And you'd expect the third person to be just an ordinary Jewish guy. But no, Jesus introduces a Samaritan into the story. Samaritans were hated by the Jews in Jesus' day. You turn back the clock. Back in 721 BC, Israel was conquered by Assyria, and over 27,000 Jews were deported, were sent off into exile. And then that whole area was resettled by colonists from other places in the Assyrian Empire. And then seven centuries later, Jesus' time, the Jews saw these descendants of these colonists, they saw them as half-breeds and heretics. John even says this, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Period. So for Jesus to introduce a Samaritan as a good guy in the story, after a selfish priest and an uncaring Levite, yeah, it kind of got everybody's attention. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Samaritan doesn't move 
to the other side of the road. When he sees the wounded man, he takes pity on him. Now this word pity comes from another word that actually literally means your, your insides or your guts. And it's kind of a way of saying that, that the Samaritan's compassion for the wounded man came from deep down inside of him. He was moved by this man's pain and his need and he was compelled to respond with love. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and he took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins, he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now notice, like, the Samaritan's love for this guy was costly. He used his own supplies to cleanse and soothe this man's wounds, his own clothing to bandage him, his own animal to carry him, while the Samaritan had to walk down this treacherous, rocky path, his own money to pay for his care, his own reputation and credit to vouch for any further expenses the man's care would require. Love can be costly. But if we have the ability and the resources to help, how far are we willing to go? How much are we willing to give? The Apostle John taught, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on him, How can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So this Samaritan's mercy was, was genuine and it was generous. Mercy that didn't just keep the letter of the law, but its spirit as well. He promised the innkeeper who seemed to trust the Samaritan to reimburse him for any additional cost. Whatever this man needs, he says, there's no limit to his mercy. So Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus punches home the point. Who is the neighbor? The one who showed mercy. And this Hebrew concept of mercy, it's a, it's a sort of this faithfulness, deep faithfulness between people that results in human kindness and compassion. And mercy, it's not an option for God's people good example of this is found in Micah 6. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. Jesus commands His disciples very specifically. He says, Be merciful. Just as your Father 
is merciful. So the lawyer begins by asking for a definition of neighbor. So he could justify limiting his own love only to the Jews. And Jesus' story makes it clear that our neighbor is whoever has a need. It doesn't matter who they are. Jesus' command to love our neighbor as ourselves knows no limit. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jesus isn't content to just define what neighbor means. He commands us to do as the Samaritan does, to show mercy to anyone in need. You know, I remember times in my life when being labeled a do-gooder wasn't such a, a positive thing. And if you were called a goody two-shoes, remember that? Yeah, you were laughed at. So are Christians to be do-gooders? Yeah, I suppose so. But our motivation for doing good must be love. Love for others. Love that comes from, from here. Love that comes from here. So what do we take away from Jesus' parable? Three simple principles I think we can learn about loving our neighbor. One, lack of love is easy to justify, but it's never right. You can usually find a reason not to get involved in the needs of other people. It's too complicated. It's too messy. It takes too much time. Someone's probably better at it than you. It costs too much. I don't want to be taken advantage of. And the list goes on and on. There will always be an excuse. But trading love for an excuse is basically choosing not to love. Number two, our neighbor is anyone, any race, any creed, any social or economic background, anyone who is in need, anyone, everyone, not just people like you or me who look like you, who talk like you, who believe like you, who dress like you, who have the same values as you, who vote like you, who make money like you, who spend their money like you, who raise their kids like you, who like the same things that you do. Your neighbor is anyone who has a need. And then number three, love means acting to meet the person's needs. Being a neighbor means reaching out to others with love and compassion. Wherever you live, there are needy people close by. There is no good reason for refusing to help. At the summit on Friday, Immaculee Ilabagiza a survivor of the Rwandan genocide spoke. Her entire family was killed in the spring of 94 when the Hutus killed about a million Tutsis. 
and she spent three months hiding in a tiny bathroom with seven other people. And she told us, God is real. Whatever our Lord tells us is right. The greatest commandment is love. The genocide happened because we failed to love one another. When I struggle to think what to do, the answer is to love. I can act, I can think, and I can do with love. Before I pray, I want to encourage you to examine your heart. What motivates you? How much has selfishness and a deep devotion to the rules and protecting your way of life drained you of the mercy that Jesus holds dear and wants to grow in your heart? When push comes to shove, do you put yourself first? Do you pass by on the other side? Or do you put the needs of others in need first? Tough questions. Jesus' command, go and do likewise, means that we must value acts of mercy over personal gain. What does it mean for you? Pray with me. Father, the parable of the Good Samaritan reminds me that sometimes, often, I try to justify my own selfishness. I'm a lot like the lawyer. I know a lot about theology and the Bible, but knowledge isn't what you seek. It's my heart that you want. And the acts of love and mercy that should flow freely out of my heart. So forgive me, Lord, for my selfishness. Forgive me for the excuses I make. May your love and mercy grow in my heart, in our hearts, and overcome our selfishness. I pray this in Jesus' name.